Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In the next-to-last lesson in our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, Dale South shows us how God sovereignly directed and protected Paul so that he might ultimately take the gospel to the end of the earth in the city of Rome. So please open your Bible to Acts chapter 27 and join us as we continue to imitate Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to point out a few similarities between the path of Jesus as he moved toward his finish line and the path of Paul as he moved toward his finish line. And we we see that Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of of Christ. And so we we left off last week with with Paul in prison. Been there for more than two years after his original arrest in the temple courts. Uh, the political figures were just toying with him, really. They, they were hoping that Paul was going to pay them a bribe. And we find that in Acts 24, uh, verses 26 to 27, that they were hoping he would give them some money. And Paul's opponents, on the other hand, the Jewish leaders who had actually gotten all riled up and were upset about what he had been teaching and preaching and going to the Gentiles, Those guys were trying to get the political figures to let Paul kind of come into their purview so that they could actually ambush and kill him. And so that was Paul's uh, situation that we find him in. And and to the surprise of the political leaders, Festus and King Agrippa, when offered the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to be tried there, Paul had this understanding that the people wanted to kill him. And and he also had even a deeper understanding that was more than fear of his death. It was this understanding that his mission had not been completed yet, that God had called him to go to Rome with the gospel. So to the surprise of these political leaders, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen, and he appealed his case directly to Caesar. And that happened in Acts chapter 25. Now, Do you recall a time that after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead back in in John chapter 11, he he knew that returning to Jerusalem at that particular time with all the opposition of the Jewish leaders around him, that there was going to be a very dangerous time to go back. And and, in that context, Luke chapter 9, verse 51 has a verse that's been very, uh, very powerful to me. It says, when the days drew near... For Jesus to be taken up, he he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, there's a passage back in Isaiah where it said he set his face like a flint to do the Lord's will. So here's Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem, knowing what lie ahead. And his disciples knew what lie ahead, too. That's when Thomas said, well, I guess we should all go back with him so that we can die with him. Uh, So he, he knew what was happening. And so Now we get to Paul at this stage of his ministry when he's kind of approaching his finish line. And what we really see here is Paul setting his face toward Rome. He he knows it's not going to be an easy task. He's already been in jail a couple of years and he knew it would probably cost him his life, but that was his finish line. And so in, in Luke's account of Paul's conversion back in Acts 9, we read that the angel came to Ananias, the man that God had called to go to Saul of Tarsus, before he changed his name over to Paul, before he was converted, and and to minister to him, encountered this man who had been blinded on the road to Damascus. And this angel says to Ananias, 
the Lord said to him, go to Saul, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my gospel, my, my message to the Gentiles and to kings and the Israelites, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So that was Paul's original calling that we find in his conversion experience. And now in, in Acts 22, Paul's again relating his testimony, this time to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body, uh, kind of like their senate there. And, and Paul told the Sanhedrin that he knew God had called him to go, quote, far away to the Gentiles. And at that point, they just erupted and they were all, all upset with him. So in, in the next chapter, after Paul had talked to the Sanhedrin, in Acts chapter 23, Luke records this. He says, the following night, this is right after he'd talked to the Sanhedrin the day before, the Lord stood by him. This is what we call a Christophany, when we have this special appearance of Christ coming to manifest himself after uh, he's been dead and resurrected or even before his incarnation. And and. So Christ comes and stood by Paul and he says, have courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin, so you must also testify about me in Rome. So now following Jesus' example, Paul was, was submitting like Jesus submitted to the Father. He was going to that hard place because that was the calling God had upon his life. In both cases, we see that Jesus suffered, Paul suffered. Jesus had people make unjust accusations against him. Paul had people make unjust accusations against him. And in both cases, it's interesting that God the Father let his son suffer so much and die. And God the Father let Paul suffer so much and then become a martyr for his faith. Because God was less concerned about their unjust suffering and accusations than he was about accomplishing his mission, even in spite of and at times through those very injustices. Guys, you see, opposition did not thwart the mission. It actually propelled it. Now, I, I know there's a lot of concern about where we are in our country right now. And I, I know that Christians and the church and the gospel are facing opposition that we haven't had in this country at this level in this way probably before. But I, I just want to say, guys, set your faces toward the finish line, okay? God is less concerned about Christians being shut out or called names or being called haters or being put out of the process He's much less concerned about that than he is about his mission going forth so that all peoples will be able to see Jesus put on display, not just told about Jesus, but to see him put on display by the way his people are faithful to him and by the way they're willing to suffer for him and by the way they don't let fear stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel. So as Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Here, Paul was absolutely imitating Jesus, and he's calling us to do the same in whatever context we find ourselves in. So with that context in mind, I'd like to read Acts 27, 1 through 12, and we'll work our way kind of through this, this passage this morning. It is, uh, 
for me, it's going to be, I didn't pick up my ESV this morning, so if I, I don't want to mess you guys up, but I'm going to be reading from the uh, Hallman Christian Standard Bible. Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. So when, he, 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 so when we had boarded a ship of Adramathium, we, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us, and the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. And when we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of, of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And after sailing through the open seas of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board, sailing slowly for many days. We came with difficulty as far as Snidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off Salmon. With yet more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lacia. And by now much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous. And since the fast was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, man, I can see that this voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. And since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, open to the southwest and northwest into winter there. So we see here a few things just to, to point out, and then we'll look at the map a little bit, but that there was a Roman centurion named Julius, and he's actually named, which is interesting. So there's something significant about this man that his name would figure in scripture as a historic record. And Julius uh, was kind to Paul. Uh, he, he, God gave Paul favor with Julius. And we see here that there's a we verse here. This says, we set sail from. So that means Luke is with them. This is one of those kind of four different passages or so in the book of Acts where we know that Luke is also uh, and a, a traveling companion to Paul and the action that is, is going on there. Um, it also distinguishes Paul as a prisoner from some of the other prisoners under Julius's guard, under his watch that he had to take to Rome, accompany them over to, to Rome. So as we look at the map here, I'm going to have to come out here to get the pointer, I think, here. Um, we, we, we've got them setting sail. You can, I don't know if we're going to be able to see the, the laser today. Yeah, it's green. Yeah. Well, they start off here at Sidon, and they go over there, and they, they finally make it around Cyprus, and they get to this little port of Myra there. And the ship, though, was going all the way up in that upper left-hand yellow there, where it's Adamithium. And so they, that was going to take them way out of their way. Uh, to, to go there. So they got off the port here at Myra and they had to wait for another ship to come. So there was another ship that came from Alexandria down here in the pink kind of area at the bottom here, Alexandria, Egypt, that was going to Rome with a lot of grain on it. 
And so that, that ship goes and it, it stops at the port at Myra. So the centurion contracts with them and, and puts his prisoners and his crew on that ship. They go on now. The, the winds are picking up. They're going there around Salmone or Salmon. And they, they end up, they couldn't go to the top side because of the winds. They really wanted to get up to Crete on the other side up there near Phoenix, but they couldn't make it. So they ended up getting blown down. They go to Fair Havens. Now, that's when Paul says, guys, we really shouldn't be traveling now. The winds are just getting too bad. We're going to have bad conditions. But the majority still said, no, we can't winter here. We got to get around to Phoenix. So they were going to go up by Cauda there and then over to Phoenix and around to get into that port that faces uh, a, a safer place with being shielded more by the, by the land. Now, Paul didn't really have a lot of credentials as a, you know, a, a seaman. He was just a, a very knowledgeable tent maker who was an expert in Jewish law in, in the Old Testament. And so it's kind of understandable that Julius would have taken the word of the owner and the captain over, over Paul at this time. But Paul had this, this perception that things were not going to, to go well. And the fast that was talked about in verse 9 is actually the Day of Atonement. And that would be late September or early October. And so it's, it's kind of like our hurricane season when you start to get into those bad storm seasons. That, that, those months of the year were the stormy season for that region. And so sailing became much more dangerous. Now, Julius seemed to have been the final decision maker. And when they had the majority say, we're going to move on forward, they, they moved on forward. So let's pick up the story in verse 13 through 20. So when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they'd achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But not long afterward, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. And since the ship was caught and was, un, uh, was unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and they girded the ship. Then, fearing they would run aground on Syrtis, they lowered the drift anchor and in this way were driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. And on the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and, all the, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. This gentle wind turned into a ferocious storm. And, and the ship was absolutely at the mercy of the wind, being driven wherever the wind was taking it. And those on board, they had absolutely no idea where they were. You see, there, they said there was darkness there. Uh, there. There were no sun, no stars, no planets, and there was nothing to align themselves by. They were just out there bobbing along, driven along in the darkness, in turbulent seas. They were disoriented and they were absolutely hopeless. They had given up any hope that they were even going to be able to survive by this time. Now, I don't want to get too allegorical here, but I do think this can be somewhat of a metaphor for uh, life in our, our times. When we go through these storms, when it's dark, when it's turbulent, when we're disoriented, 
Sometimes we feel hopeless. Any of you guys ever been in those storms, those situations where it was dark and turbulent, you were disoriented and feeling hopeless? Paul is living that physically right now. Even the professional soldiers lost all hope they were going to be saved. So in this hopeless situation, pick it up in verse 23, 24. For this night, Paul said, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and look. God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, take courage, Paul says, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. See, the the Lord sent the angel to Paul with this message, and it's very, very clear here. God wanted Paul to be able to testify before Caesar. And God was going to protect all the other people on the ship because he was showing them favor because he had a message and a ministry for Paul. Now, the big idea, pretty simple, it kind of aligns with Romans 8.29, for all things work to the good for God, who love God and call according to his purpose. God will lead us through the storms and the shipwrecks of our lives to take us where he wants us to be. Now, what, what we're going to see here, though, is there's this kind of tension, this kind of paradox, if you will, between God's sovereignty and our ability to make decisions and to choose our free will, as we might would call that. Um, as a result of God's pleasure and mission with Paul, the Lord was going to show favor to everyone else on that boat. God has granted you all those who are with you, he told Paul. And notice the beautiful way Paul talks about uh, God to the men on the ship. Uh, to the God to whom I belong. You know, I was, I was reading this passage the other day, and it just brought me to tears as I was uh, just thinking, the God to whom I belong. Uh, I, he says he's not my God so much as I am his child. Uh, I belong to him. He, he is, I, I love the word in, in Guarani when we were in Paraguay. Uh, the word for Lord in, in, in Guarani is Nyande Jara, which means literally our owner. Okay. Uh, the, the Lord is our owner. And Paul said, I belong to this God and I worship this God. And he told them that although they would be saved, the ship was going to run aground on an island. So after two weeks of being bobbing around out there on the ocean in the darkness, not knowing where they were, uh, they, they were going to eventually be saved. But the sailors started to realize that the ship was approaching land. And after two weeks of weathering this storm, the, these guys were not the ethical, honorable sailors that those of you in the Navy were who have these ethics of you know, not abandoning the ship. These guys were out to save themselves. So they, they pretended they were going to go drop the anchors, but their intention was really to take the lifeboat and make a run for it. And so the sailors were going to get off of there. They knew land wasn't that far. They said, you know, we get in the lifeboat, we got a chance of making it. So they, they, they pretended they were going to do that, but, but Saul or Paul became aware. There's something theologically very profound in chapter uh, 2731. And Paul now says, unless these men stay in the ship, 
you cannot be saved. So just a little while earlier, he says, God has promised me that everybody on the ship's going to be saved and not a hair of your head is going to be harmed. And then he said, but if you don't let these, if you don't make these guys stay, you guys aren't going to make it. So it seems like a contradiction. It seems like a paradox here because in one hand, God is sovereign. He's made his promise. And on the other hand, something has to depend on the decisions that are made by the human beings that are on that boat. At this point, the army guys, they, they don't know a whole lot about sailing. They're pretty good at guarding prisoners and they're going to take make sure these guys are going to get over to Rome, but they're not sailors. And so at this point, the army guys who didn't know much about sailing rescued everybody else from the treacherous sailors who did know how to sail the ship. And the army guys cut the ropes to the lifeboat so the sailor guys can't go, go making off. And so the army beats the Navy, saves the day. Um, that, at least in this game, right? Um, so, there, so there was talk, there was talk of killing the prisoners so that they would not escape. And that would have been understandable because the guys in charge of carrying the prisoners, we know, we may have heard before, that if your prisoner escapes, you will oftentimes be killed or punished very severely because you let the guy get out of your, your custody there. So because Julius wanted to save Paul, because Paul had found favor with Julius, he ordered that none of the prisoners be killed. Very gutsy thing for Julius to do. And, and Luke tells us then that there were 276 passengers on that ship and not one of them was lost. Paul's words were validated. Now, we look more carefully at this profound theological reality that God has granted all of those who sail with you to be saved on one hand. And then on the other hand, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. One hand, it sounds like Paul saying it's predestined that you will all be rescued. So it doesn't really matter what you do because God's got this. And yet, on the other hand, Paul saying, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And so he's saying your choices have consequences and you're responsible for them. Paul says everything is under God's control. He's also saying our choices matter. So we cannot be so fatalistic or predeterministic as to say, you know, it just doesn't matter what I do. It's all going to happen. Whatever happens will be. It is what it is. We can't go there. Nor can we be so self-determinative as to say, I, I got this. I'm going to make my own choices. I, I, I'm a free man and I, I'm going to do what I can to control all the storms in my life. You see, in Jesus's life and in Paul's life, both men knew they had a mission from God and they were both going to do everything in their power to pursue that mission. And yet both of them knew that God was ultimately in control and they trusted him even when things were not going the way they would have preferred that they go. Now, Paul might not have been a professional sailor, but he was pretty close, this is interesting, pretty close to being a sh professional shipwreck victim, okay? <laughs> Look at 2 Corinthians 11.25. Paul writes, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now, something really intrigued me about this. I actually heard somebody mention this the other day in a message 
that Paul had been shipwrecked three times. And I started to think back through this a little. And, you know, I said, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians was written before 57, probably 55 or 56 A.D. Acts wasn't written until at least the early 60s at the earliest and possibly later. So this shipwreck could not have been included in those first three. This this was actually Paul's fourth shipwreck that he had suffered. He said he'd spent a day and a half out in the open seas. Uh, I just can't imagine Paul ever getting on a boat after the first or second shipwreck. I mean, I I would have been saying, find me a land route. Uh, I don't care if it takes three years. I'm not getting on another one of those boats being out at sea. Uh, stuck in the water. But uh, Paul continued to get on there. And uh, I can't can't imagine a captain saying this guy's been shipwrecked three times, even letting a guy on his boat. Um, But in in all the storms and all the shipwrecks, we, we see two truths in Paul's life that we also see in Jesus's life. God allowed both of them to suffer more than most of us will ever have to suffer as they carried out their missions before God. And we also see that God was absolutely sovereign in both of them. And God used all those injustices and all all those pieces of suffering. God did not waste a one of them, but he used each of those things to accomplish his perfect will and mission. See, God, God was not going to let those corrupt politicians keep Paul down although they did take away his freedom for more than two years at a time, and one, and he was in jail other times as well for really not having committed any crimes. God, God did not let the more than 40 guys who wanted to ambush and kill Paul get away with it so they, they couldn't carry off their plan. God, God was not going to let a storm that he himself had created, by the way, right? He's the, he's the Lord of winds and rains and, and waves, He did not let four shipwrecks that Paul suffered take Paul out early. And and God was going to complete his promises, and Paul was doing everything possible to complete the mission that God had given him. In some ways, it really does look like we're bulletproof until God finishes up with us, doesn't it? But it is not God's sovereignty or our efforts but it's both God's sovereignty and our efforts. And how this all fits in, guys, is something that my finite mind can never really get. Okay, I don't think we're going to understand this probably until, until heaven. You're going to have your Presbyterians and your really, really staunch predestinationalists on one side. You're going to have your, your Methodists and your Arminians and your very, very staunch free will guys on the other side. And sometimes the two will never meet, but in Jesus and in God, somehow they're both true. Somehow the fact that God is sovereign over all the universe and not a a hair from our head ever falls down without his knowing and that he places people on the earth where he wants them to be in the times he wants them to be there. He gives them their mission. He gives them the life that they've got. And yet our decisions have consequences and we are absolutely responsible for our decisions. We, We have agency. And yet God superintends that agency. Now, we, we may not know at this time where our finish line on earth is. But for Jesus, it was Jerusalem, right? He set his face toward Jerusalem. 
for Paul, it was going to be Rome. He set his face toward Rome. He was going to go there to testify before Caesar because God had called him to. And even though you and I don't know exactly where our finish line is, perhaps, we do know that it's getting closer. Even for these young bucks like Brian and Luke back there, they're closer to the finish line today than they were yesterday. And, and for Jesus and Paul, that meant using every ounce of their being to finish the race set before them, even though they knew injustice and suffering were unavoidable and they would be painful. All the while, they trusted that God was the one who would carry them on to the finish line. We live in that tension of God's sovereignty and the comfort of God's sovereignty to know that it's actually in his control and not mine. And it's not in control of the guys who may want to do me harm. And it's not in control of the politicians. And it's not in control of the media. And it's not in control of any pack group out there. It's not even in control of our church leaders. It is in control of him. We've all experienced storms in our lives. And, you know, some of us, I think, have had some relational storms. Some of us have had some professional storms in our work. Perhaps some financial storms that you lost all hope and weren't sure how that was going to work out. Sometimes we've even had spiritual shipwrecks. <clears throat> Sometimes we're still today seeing consequences of decisions we made years ago with how our kids have maybe not gone in the direction we would like them to. Or maybe we came to faith later in life when our we wish we had those years back with our children so that we could have raised them in the truth of God's word and in the love of his, his uh, grace. Whatever those storms and those shipwrecks may have been, this passage today tells us that God is superintending those things, that, that God is ultimately in control and he's bigger than our decisions and he's bigger than the bad decisions that we've made and the consequences that we may still be carrying. Again, the, the, the big idea, again, is God will lead us through the storms and shipwrecks of our lives to take us where he wants us to be, and there's nothing we can do to keep that from happening. We can be sure that he is sovereign, even in spite of those consequences that we still suffer, or injustices that others have inflicted upon us or are maybe going to inflict upon us. God will so sovereignly use the suffering and the storms and the shipwrecks for our good, and for the good of his mission, the glory of his name. Thanks for joining us for the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us next week for our final lesson in our series on the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. God bless and have a great week.